If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 567. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. Why are there? Give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. Always free to enroll. Get the free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, purchase one of the classes there or 20 of the classes there. You get great content and you help keep this podcast free of charge. Also, click on the support tab at brianmclanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way. You can get a book plate if you want to autograph one of my books. Purchase one of my books wherever books are sold online. The latest being The Jeffersonian Tradition and Southern Scribblings. Also, click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you like it. Leave that review. Rate it. Give it five stars if you love it. And I'm not certain that anyone would want to give it one star. But give it five stars if you love it. And let people know about it. Also, share it around on social media. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. And send me those show requests. I do enjoy those as well. I'd like to keep you in the loop, and listener-generated episodes are always good. Now, this is actually a listener-generated episode, but from a while back. This was sent to me a while ago, and I wanted to wait to do it until January 19th. So, this is a piece that appeared in um, uh, lawliberty.org, and it's by Richard Gamble, who I consider to be a a colleague. Uh, He teaches, actually, at Hillsdale College. There's uh, And Brad Berzer also teaches there. I like both Richard and, and Brad. Uh, Richard Gamble um, and I had the same uh, advisor in graduate school. And so he was there before I was, though. But we, we've, uh, we've had talks and, and uh, many times over the years. So he's a very good scholar. He writes really good histories of the Puritans. And what I mean by that is what Richard Gamble does is show the self-righteousness of that Puritan culture and this Yankee vision of America. He does a really good job with that. Now, this particular piece is a takedown of Alan Gelzo. And Alan Gelzo's new biography of Robert E. Lee, which is absolutely pathetic, uh, it was going to be. Now, as I've said before on this show, Alan Gelzo writes well. He's got a great radio voice he has a fantastic media presence. Okay, I'll say that about Alan Gelzo. He sounds good on the mic. And not just that, he is, a, he is an intelligent guy. Um, he is someone who is, um, and I call him stupid because of what he does, but he's not, he's, he's intelligent, but he's stupid in the way he does things because he doesn't see, he's short-sighted, which is stupidity, right? Um, he is... Uh, someone who writes well, I can't say anything different from that, but his position on Lee was predictable. He starts the book from the premise that Lee was a traitor, and he comes from a, from a position where Lee is the antithesis of everything good about America. This is his whole point, 
And this is why the left loves Alan Gelzo. He, this is why you can get a job at Princeton uh, teaching there with Kevin Cruz. Because Kevin Cruz and Alan, and Alan Gelzo are going to see eye to eye on some fundamental issues in America. And that fundamental issue is the war and the meaning of the war. They're going to see the same thing. Gelzo and Cruz are going to see race and treason at the heart of everything. There's no difference in the two. This is what I've said over and over again. This is why these people on the right that promote this kind of nonsense are undermining their own position. If you are aligned with Kevin Cruz on just about anything, you're in the wrong place. You're in the wrong place. And this is what I would say to anybody on the right who holds these positions. So Richard Gamble uh, does a nice job. I think he's he's fair. He wouldn't do this review like I would, where he would completely destroy it. Um, he's fair and measured. And in some ways, that's what you have to do to, to get people to listen to you, right? Sometimes a chainsaw is not the most effective tool. You need a scalpel. I mean, when you want to cut out a tumor, you don't cut off the leg, right? So... In so many ways, Gamble, I think, is trying to take that measured approach. And uh, you need that at times. Okay, and that's what I like about this piece. So, again, lawliberty.org is where this was uh, written. It's Lee's Loyalty, and it's by Richard Gamble from Hillsdale College. On October 13, 1870, the New York Times reported massive French defeats in the Franco-Prussian War as the German onslaught advanced. The city of Orléans was in flames. Strasbourg had surrendered. Metz and Paris lay under siege. In January, the victorious per, uh, Prussians would announce the unification of Germany at the Palace of Versailles. Readers of the Times would have recognized the names of Sheridan and Burnside. In the closing months of the war, Lieutenant General Philip Sheridan of the U.S. Army advised Bismarck on the conduct of total war, while former, former Union General Ambrose Burnside served as an unofficial mediator between Bismarck and the French government helping to negotiate an armistice and relaying assurances that elections for the French Assembly would be allowed to proceed. Now, let me stop there. There were many Southerners who went to France. One of the most famous is the Green family. Went to France. Why? Because they saw in France a defeated people at the hands of a centralizing power. That's the amazing thing about it. You see, when, when Sherman occupied Savannah, during the war, he used the Green family mansion as his headquarters. The Greens left Savannah and went to France. And you had a very famous uh, Southern writer, Julian Green, write about this. He, he was in France. He found commonality with the French people because they had all been defeated. He went back to Virginia. He went to the University of Virginia and saw in the South his vision of what the world was, defeat. And so I love it that that uh, Gamble begins this piece with a comparative study. This is important, these comparative studies. And what was going on in Europe in the 19th century was exactly what was happening in the South at the same time period, in the United States. By 1870, Americans had watched the Europeans' war of, wars of national independence and unification for two generations. Some celebrated the birth of modern Italy and Germany. Others dreaded the political, social, and ideological turmoil of the age. Among the celebrants, Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner had asked an audience of young men in 1867, Are we a nation? 
He answered with an emphatic yes and interpreted the recent Union victory in world historical terms as part of the inevitable march of nationalization against the pernicious forces of denationalization. He congratulated Italy and predicted imminent success for Germany. Think about that. These Union people were celebrating what would actually lead to nasty wars in the 20th century. They celebrated. What began all of that was the French Revolution. That unleashed this wave of nationalism on Europe, and that would result in the wars of unification. The Italian unification movement was left-wing. Heck, Garibaldi was trying to get what was was telling Lincoln how great he was. Garibaldi was essentially a communist. Readers of the Times' coverage of the unfolding events in France might have had fresh occasion to think of America's own bloody struggle as they saw a notice of the death of Robert E. Lee. The general had passed away in Lexington, Virginia, having served since the war as president of Washington College, later renamed Washington and Lee in his honor. Only five and a half years had passed since Lee surrendered to Grant at Appomattox, ending the terrible, late terrible rebellion as the Times called it. The editors left no doubt in their readers' minds about Lee's guilt. Up to Lee's fateful decision in April 1861 to resign his commission and fight for Virginia, quote, his career had been one of honor and the highest promise, the Times conceded. He had been a man of personal integrity, loyalty, and patriotism. But this man of splendid talents had thrown in his lot with traitors. The Times blamed his treason on the fact that he seems to have been thoroughly imbued with pernicious doctrine that his first and highest allegiance was due to the state of his birth. Thousands. Even his friends would come to lament this error of judgment, this false conception of the allegiance due his government and his country. With bitter vitriol, a Harrisonburg PA paper called Lee the worst man ever born in America. He had been a depraved, calculating, ambitious man, and every man killed on both sides after the battles of Gettysburg and Vicksburg are murders, clearly and justly chargeable to the dead traitor. The editor's style was muddy, but Lee's guilt was clear. So it's important, again, I think Gamble does a good job here in showing that this reconciliation wasn't there necessarily for everyone in the 19th century. And there were people in the North who certainly believed Southerners were all traitors. Lee was the worst of the bunch. Jefferson Davis, Lee, they were all bad. And they all deserved a fate worse than death. They deserved it. It's often thought that this was not the case. You know, Northerners didn't really think this way. That came a little later. That came by the 1880s. You started to see more of that, this reconciliation. And lo and behold, 1880s, 1890s, you get Confederate monuments built because finally the South had some money to do so. And Northerners were pitching in, by the way. And so 50 years after the war is over, you start to see more of it. 30 years, 25 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. This is the high point of building statues in the United States, not just for the South, but also in the North, as people started to remember. And these old veterans were in their 70s and 80s, and they were starting to die out. Now on to Alan Gelzo. Alan Gelzo leaves no doubt about his own judgment of Lee's guilt in his new biography of the Confederate commander. He announces Lee's guilt at the beginning, middle, and end of this biography, the product of seven years of research and writing. Gelzo established himself as one of the most acclaimed students of Abraham Lincoln, the Civil War and Reconstruction. His work is premised on America's identity from the beginning as a nation, and a radically new nation at that. In a recent interview with 
Richard uh, Reinch here at Law and Liberty, Gelzo said that the United States was born not in an act of secession, but of revolution. A nation that got rid of the entire notion of monarchy, hierarchy, British law, everything that connected us in a way to the British past. But that's not true. I mean, I'm not certain what, what Gelzo is reading here, but that's not true at all. The conservative George Washington was a revolutionary. We got rid of monarchy when Alexander Hamilton was saying we need an American king. I don't think we got rid of any of that. We just, I mean, yes, for a, a very brief period, there was a sense that maybe we would have a different central order, but the power structure in the states never changed. This is why it was a conservative war of independence more than anything else. But no, if it's revolutionary, if everything is revolutionary, then the left is right from the beginning. This is what I've said. If these people firmly believe this, they're just leftists. All of those things, he continued, were thrown overboard when we created an entirely new nation, a republic based on entirely different principles than the British Empire have been built upon. That's not true at all. Patrick Henry stands up and says we're fighting for the ancient constitutions, the Magna Charta, the English Bill of Rights. That's not any different. In fact, the Declaration of Informing Structure was the same as the English Bill of Rights. This is a ridiculously stupid assertion. But yet, this is what Gelza will do, and he is a great conservative historian. How stupid. As I said, he's a smart guy, but he's too smart to be this stupid. Conservatives have been arguing about America's British heritage since at least the Second World War, but they have also argued over the word nation, especially as read through the text of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. If the United States had indeed been a nation since the Declaration of Independence, and even earlier, according to Lincoln's first inaugural, then Lee's guilt is simple and unambiguous. At least three presuppositions guide this book. One, that it is the historian's task to render such verdicts. Two, that the modern nation-state is a positive good. And three, that Lee's country in 1861 was the American nation and not the state of Virginia. I may differ with Gelzo on one or more of these points, but this is his book, and he is entitled to tell his story his way. Gelzo identifies himself at the outset as a Yankee and a proud descendant of abolitionists who wage a righteous war for union and freedom. How stupid. Gelzo, not that, not that, but that this is what he thinks the war is all about. The self-righteousness is just ridiculous. Gelzo has read through massive amounts of primary and secondary sources, and he writes very well, though some readers may drift off in the detailed explanations of Lee's engineering projects for the U.S. Army. He reconstructs Lee's childhood as the son of Light Horse Harry Lee, his stellar career at West Point, his work as an Army engineer that took him all over America, his service in the Mexican War, on through the fateful decision to fight for Virginia. Four long years of war and accomplishes accomplishments as president of Washington College. Gelzo's Lee is a man haunted by his father's bankruptcy, a man pursuing independence, security, and perfection, a man of diminished glory as a general and guilty of great crime. Beginning in the book with a guilty verdict deprives Gelzo's account of Lee of much of its suspense and contingency. Even if we knew the end of the story, we should be made to feel as if we don't, as if everything could have been different. But it is hard to imagine how a mainstream historian published by a major press could ever, in these days of cultural turmoil, signal any hesitation about Lee's crime. History is full of ambiguities that it is impossible for an ideological age to stomach. This is exactly, Campbell's exactly right there. You're not going to get a career out of praising Robert E. Lee. Not now. Never in the, in the academic world. Gelzo wants to work at Princeton. And so to work at Princeton, you have to write negative things about Lee. 
Gels' assessment of Lee needs to be read in the light of the book's epilogue. Indeed, readers would do well to start with the final pages. Gelzo complains of modern assaults on the nation-state from globalist political theorists such as A. John Simmons and libertarians such as Murray Rothbard. He sees danger and skepticism about the modern nation, the need for the standard of absolute loyalty to a single political entity. Think about what he's saying here. Is that any different than saying, uh, God saved the king? Would he have been saying something different in 17... Absolute single political entity, absolute loyalty. Would he have said the same thing about George III? Because that's the natural conclusion you draw. Well, no, wait a second here. It's a revolution. Uh, but we got to have absolute political loyalty. So was Washington wrong? Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, Adams? In his own state, Dickinson? James Wilson? Of course, Wilson was on the fence. Were these people wrong? Dickinson was also sort of on the fence. Was Ben Franklin wrong? His own state? I think it's safe to say that he sees this kind of deconstruction as morally corrosive. In our day, we are losing our ability to see treason against the nation as a crime. The one inarguable crime of Robert E. Lee. Crime in italics. Crime of Robert E. Lee. It's not a, he didn't commit treason. See, Gelzo is hung up on this thing. I could prove to you that treason wasn't legal. No, you can't. You can't prove it at all. Dummy. Whatever the faults of the nation state, he continues, it has proven since the 18th century and perhaps even since the Peace of Westphalia to be a frail but workable insurance against the kinds of incessant, dynastic, ethnic, and religious warfare that used to be the common lot of the human race and the most stable platform of the emergence and cultivation of democracy. So he's saying because of the Peace of Westphalia, which of course is in the 17th century, we've seen the nation-state come up and we've had this great growth of peace and stability. The nation-state has stopped warfare. It has? (laughs) Okay, if you believe so. I mean, we just had the two nastiest wars in human history with the rise of the nation-state. But okay, Whatever the faults of the nation state is a phrase that needs to be confronted soberly and not tossed aside so easily. This is, this is now back to Gamble. If the nation state ended the wars of religion, which is an open question among scholars, it also plagued the world with new wars of religion in the form of ideological crusades more destructive and of wider scope than the Thirty Years' War. The 20th century bore grim witness to the dangers of nationalism, especially mixed with socialism and populism, which leaves the vexed question of whether the United States of 1787 was meant to be a nation state. We ought not to be misled by the use of the word nation by Americans of that generation. They lived in the world before the French Revolution, which unleashed the modern nation wielding unarmed doctrine, as Burke remarked. Robert E. Lee, only one generation removed from the war for independence and the son of a state at the head of that cause, thought of Virginia as his country. More than that, Lee was devoted first and foremost to his home, his land, and his kin. Gelzer does not hide how prominent these sentiments figured in Lee's letters, especially as he made the difficult decision to resign his commission as a colonel in the U.S. Army and offer his services to Virginia. To General Winfield Scott, under whom he served in Mexico and whom he admired, he wrote, Save in the defense of my native state shall I ever again draw my sword. In a letter the same day to his sister, Anne Marshall, he regretted secession, saw it as needless, and longed of reconciliation. Nevertheless, quote, In my own person I had to meet the question whether I should take part against my native state. 
With all my devotion to the Union and the feeling of loyalty and duty of an American citizen, I have not been able to make up my mind to raise my hand against my relatives, my children, my home. I have therefore resigned my commission in the Army and save in defense of my native state with the sincere hope that my poor services may never be needed. I hope I may never be called on to draw my sword. I know you will blame me, but you must think as kindly of me as you can and believe that I have endeavored to do what I thought right. Now, this is interesting because Elizabeth Pryor in her book, Reading the Man, says, well, Lee, I mean, he could have done something else. All of his relatives did. Other people, the Lee family stayed with the union. He wasn't that anguished about this. This is all fabricated. It's all just show. It's theater. It's one of the downsides of the book, one of the stupid parts of the book. And in a letter to a young correspondent in the North dated May 5, 1861, and printed three months later in the New York Times, Lee explained, quote, It is painful to think how many friends will be separated and estranged by our unhappy disunion. May God reunite our severed bonds of friendship and turn our hearts to peace. I can say sincerely that I bear animosity against no one. Wherever the blame may be, the fact is that we are in the midst of a fratricidical war. I, I must side either with or against my section of the country. I cannot... Raise my hand against my birthplace, my home, my children. I should like above all things, he continued, that our difficulties might be peacefully arranged and tr still trust that a merciful God, who I know will not unnecessarily afflict us, may yet allay the fury of war. Whatever may be the result of the contest, he feared, I foresee that the country will have to pass through a terrible ordeal, a necessary, I already read this part. And surely those national sins involve more than slavery. In spite of this anguish, Gelzo concludes that Lee publicly turned his back on his service, his flag, and ultimately his country. But the identity of his country is a question at stake and the principal question for his generation. It is easy to forget how open the question of states' rights, nullification, and secession were before 1860, and not just in the South. Consider the language and threats of the Hartford Convention during the War of 1812. Consider the debates of Massachusetts legislature in the 1840s over the possibility of secession from the, from the slaveholding South. Consider how willing the most radical abolitionists were to let the South go in 1860, some refusing to let their sons enlist in the Union Army until the war became a war to end slavery. Gelzo finds this easy to resolve. Lee did not. For Gelzo, Lee faced no real dilemma. All of this was done for the sake of a political regime whose acknowledged purpose was the preservation of a system of chattel slavery that he knew to be an evil and for which he felt little affection and whose constitutional basis he dismissed as a fiction. Gelzo's biography is ultimately defense of the modern nation-state that emerged in the 19th century, the nation-state that replaced the federal union. This is the key point, because what Gelzo is doing here is trying to establish the supremacy of the center. That's the whole point of Gelzo's position. This is why Gamble's saying read the back end first. Many northerners fought bravely and honorably to restore the territorial union as it was, but the federal republic entered into voluntarily and held together by goodwill, could not be restored after four years of bloody war. It was reassembled by total war. The wonder is that, the central, is that centralization of power did not go further after 1865 or faster. The 1860s witnessed three major wars, a series of wars for national unification, the Italian, the German, and the American. All three culminated in the birth of modern nation-states secured by force of arms. Whether the historical comparison obscures important differences more than it illuminates instructive similarities, many Americans at the time and before and after the Civil War, North and South, thought in these transatlantic terms. They watched the decline of ancient empires, Austrian, Russian, and Ottoman, and the consolidation of nation-states as part of one story, perhaps the defining question of their day. Some looked on in hope, some in fear, 
Some rejoice to see the collapse of tyrannical multinational empires as necessary and inevitable steps along history's glorious path to liberty, equality, and fraternity, the triumph of human emancipation from these shackles of the past. Others saw the upheavals in Europe as harbingers of religious, intellectual, moral, and political collapse, a mood we don't expect to find in the textbook caricature of an exuberant democracy boasting of its manifest destiny. In the South, especially for someone like Calhoun, the revolutions of 1848 conjured up fears of social and political disintegration. This is one reason why he resisted the weaponizing of the Declaration of Independence into a tool for perpetual ideological revolution. Exactly right. Gamble is solid in all of this. I mean, he's exactly right. Gelzo's book is, again, a, a um, polemic for the nation-state. It's a polemic for centralization. What, what Gelzo doesn't realize, though, is that we never... Conservatives, if you're a conservative or a libertarian, you never win in that struggle. Because we don't, we're not going to give away as much candy as the people next door with, uh, at Halloween. They're just at the left. They're just not going to do it. Generalizations are hazardous to make about something so complex as collective self-understandings a century and a half ago. But on the whole, the North and Midwest strike me as more favorably disposed than the South to the revolutions, wars for independence, and wars for national unification that swept Europe in the 19th century. Certain leading public intellectuals in New England had been. Giuseppe Mazzini enjoyed widespread acclaim in Boston's literary, circle, literary circles. Some intended to import his brand of romantic nationalism to America, and there were indeed some Southerners keen to justify their bid for national independence by comparing their calls to Hungary and Poland. That the Northern pro-Union pressure to proclaim Lee's guilt comes as no surprise. The U.S. had ended a bloody, violent, and protracted war only recently a war that shocked Europe with its intensity and brutality, a preview of what modern industrialized total war had in store for the world. This is not exactly the lesson New World Republicanism had wanted to teach Old World despotism in the 19th century. America was supposed to be on the winning side of history, and the North on the winningest side of all. Lee found himself caught between two Americas, and he is still entangled in conflicts between different Americas, perhaps more than the two of his time, than this time. Gelzo's Lee offers one answer to the problem of what to do with Lee in his memory in, the, in a time of fragmentation. But it is doubtful Lee can ever be made safe for nationalism. So Gelzo is simply regurgitating the arguments, and, Gel and Gamble begins this with that Harrisonburg newspaper. That's all Gelzo is doing. He's regurgitating that argument, which was not the argument that won America, by the way. That was not the argument that Americans overall thought of Lee that won the Lee argument. It's not. But this is exactly what Gelzo is trying to do in this book. And I love this review from Gamble because he really gives Gelzo his due here. He points out what Gelzo really is doing and how Gelzo is completely insane for doing this in some ways. He doesn't say that, but this is what he's doing. The nation state is stability. The nation state brought us the German Empire. The nation-state destroyed liberty in Europe. And yet, we're supposed to believe this is the best thing that ever happened to man. It's not. Federalism, real federalism, could have solved many of these problems. The South wanted to go in peace. It didn't have to be a war. Gelzo misses that entire point. It didn't have to be a war. That should always be the question. Why did they decide to attack the South? There had to be a reason to save the Union. What Union? 
There's no union there anymore. It's a nation state. That's what they tried to create. All right. So I wanted to talk about this piece today because, of course, what the day is, but um, and how Lee still is the central figure in all of this in America. There's no denying that. Lee is the central figure. He has to be because he became the image of what this war, the, the, the symbol of the war, right? I mean, it was Lee uh, became the symbol of the South and the South in resisting the center. That's what it was. But to the North, they had to make it about something. They couldn't have it just be about the Union because it was, then that's not righteous. Then that would be the same position as the British. Well, how could you do that? If the war was just about saving the Union, well, that became morally problematic for them. How can you kill people for that? But if it became about slavery, well, that's something else. That's something else now. Then that becomes it's a justifiable war then. They had to come up with something else to do it. When in reality, it's always been about one word, and that is power. Power. If it's about power, it's not a morally just war. This is why Rothbard, who Gelzo is very critical of, this is why Rothbard would say there have been two wars in America that have been justified in his mind. And one of them was the war for Southern independence because it was a defensive war. All right. Hope you enjoyed this particular show. I'll see you tomorrow on the next one. See you then.